You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. This week, uh, we get to dive into Genesis again, so if you have a Bible, grab it. We're going to be in Genesis 2. And a a good friend and mentor of mine sent me um, a story this week, and this story has really impacted my own heart. In fact, the day that I read this story, um, I sat with my girls. My girls do a morning devotion time in the morning, and I, I, I read this story to them, and I, I story told this story to them um, because I really do believe it is a great articulation of the gospel. Uh, and so when Dave sent this to me, um, it, it just really penetrated my heart, and I really feel like this sets the stage and the tone for everything we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to read this story, uh, and then we're going to dive into the text in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It's a day in the life of Johnny Lingo. Johnny Lingo was a character in a short piece of fiction written by Patricia McGurr in 1965 entitled Johnny Lingo and the Eight Cow Wife. Johnny was a Polynesian and one of the sharpest traders in the South Pacific Islands. He was strong, bright, rich. He was a leader among the people in the island of Nurabandi. On the adjacent island of Kiniwata, Try to say that again. Kiniwata, there lived a woman named Sarata, or Sarita, plain, skinny, and in desperate need of some Mary Kay products. Sarita was not exactly a looker. And in this story, what you see is that there was this reverse dowry that would happen where where a man would would purchase his bride with this reverse dowry with cows. And so uh, if you had two cows, you would get an average wife. If you added a third cow, you would get an above average wife. Four cows would be like, man, you would get like the all-star wife. But then something remarkable happened. In a transaction that shocked the islanders, Johnny shelled out eight cows for Sarita. Now, this was not normal for someone who wasn't uh, an above average or even an average wife. I mean, he went far above and beyond. So why pay quadruple for the going rate for Sarita? Simple. Johnny wanted her to know that in his eyes, she was worth more than any other woman. It was a loud statement from him of her value. To Johnny, it was how he saw Sarita. She was an eight-cow wife. After I told the story, I told my wife that she was an eight-cow wife. That didn't land, guys. So, so don't leave here being like, you're my eight-cow wife. It, it's, it doesn't translate. Word of this unprece- uh, unprecedented bride price spread far and wide, but that's not the end of the story. One day, a visitor came who had heard the story of Johnny's marriage, and she wanted to see the bride for herself. When she did, she couldn't even believe her eyes. Sarita was the most beautiful woman that I have ever seen, the woman reflected. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. Do you see what happened? Sarita became what Johnny declared her to be, an eight-cow wife. She was merely just walking worthy of the call that Johnny had given her. And so, for me, one of the hardest concepts to wrap my mind around, as last week we kind of just 
touched on this at the end of the sermon, was this marriage that we see in Scripture between faith and obedience. Because we tend to misdefine obedience and we tend to misdefine all of these things that are wrapped up in the Christian life. Often, if you even walk outside these walls and you ask somebody if they know about Christianity, if they've heard about Christianity, one of the responses that would be said is that, I'm not religious. Which would mean, I don't necessarily follow all of the rules and the law that are seen in here. But this book is not a book about religion. It is about the restoration of relationship that God intends for every single man, woman, and child to have. See, when we define obedience, we're talking about living in God's blessing. What God intends for us to live will bring about blessing. He's the author and the creator of all things. He knows how he has created you and me and how we are to live to receive the most joy and fulfillment and satisfaction on this earth. So it's not about do's and don'ts, it's about living into God's blessing. But, but if I find my worth in obedience, then that can very quickly become legalism. This is what Jesus continually warned the Pharisees about, is that they were finding their worth in how they obeyed the law. This would be like Sarita living, trying to live up to the expectation of an A-cow wife. And so she's putting on extra makeup. She's putting on the hair extensions, the fake eyelashes, the Botox. She's, she's trying to do something, even though he has already declared her worthy, she's trying now to live up to what she thinks this A-cow wife would be. It can also have this opposite effect as well. It could kind of lead to this carelessness. This foolish, frivolous living that Paul warns the Romans about. So all of a sudden, when we start talking about the grace of Jesus and that we are loved even in spite of our mess-ups and our failures, then the thing, well, if you, if you preach that, then people are just going to go on living how they want to live, and they're not going to live the way God intends them to live. That's what Paul warns the Romans. He says, Don't, do we, should we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? No, we shouldn't. It would be like Sarita living carelessly now that she has been declared an eight-cow wife to go out and just be like, well, if I'm an eight-cow wife, then all these other men should give me their attention. Then I'm just going to go and parade myself around for the enjoyment of everybody and, and just you know, live the way I want to live because I am worthy to live however I want to live. See, there's a big difference between these things. And there's a chasm, and, and what we see is that the gospel is so much more than legalism, and it's so much more than frivolous living. When she began to see herself the way Johnny saw her, it created in her a new identity, something at her core. See, all humans were created to obey. Obedience to live as God already sees us, as his children that are loved and forgiven holy, blameless, righteous because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And so here's where we've been. We've, we've started in Genesis 1, and we see this, this creation story. Now, we have two options. We have this option to believe in, in the Big Bang, which says that, that there was nothing, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of the nothingness, something, wait, that doesn't make sense, but anyway, something bangs together and creates everything that we see. That's what the Big Bang would say, is that, that there was nothing, and then boom, something came. 
or the creation story that we read was that there was a holy God in the midst of the darkness who spoke creation into being and he formed the waters and the mountains and the trees and the birds and the sharks and the whales. I love watching National Geographic because I get to see the beauty of all that God has created even in the depths of the ocean where we've only explored like 2% of it. Like we get to see what God has created. And then God creates man. And he creates man intimately. He didn't just speak man into being, but, but he forms man and then breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And then he forms woman intimately for an interactive relationship with him. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that, that God created rest so that we would take time in our crazy busy lives to reorient, refocus, reset, and worship him. Remember all that he has done, every minute by minute, day by day, week by week, to rest in his finished work. And then last week we saw the beauty of what it means to work. Work wasn't just something created after the fall of man. God created man and put him in the garden to work and tend it. And this work wasn't something that was like hard labor that he, he was working by the sweat of his brow. No, no, no. He actually got to work out of joy, out of an overflow and an enjoyment of his relationship with God. He just got to care for and steward what God had placed around him to enjoy. Work was meant to be good and enjoyable. And now we get to see that we were made to obey. So let me read for us chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 of Genesis. So this is after verse 15. I'll start in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Now verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, I uh, come before you, Lord, speaking about something that can often confuse this marriage between faith and obedience and how we live this life while we're here on earth, keeping our eyes fixed and focused on eternity. And so, God, I pray that you would have grace upon our hearts and our minds and our ears, that this word would penetrate our hearts, knowing that we have been given all things through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's in that that we get to serve you with everything that we have. So Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So when navigating the relationship between faith and obedience, there's a place that we need to start. And here is what we see in verse 16a. We need to know whose we are. Notice how verse 16 starts. The Lord God. We have to start there. This word there is the word Yahweh. And in fact, when they would write this word, they wouldn't even fully write out the word Yahweh. They would use an abbreviation because of the reverence and the awe that they had for God. They wouldn't even speak it. So the Hebrews, the Israelites, like they had such a reverence 
for the power of God and who he is and what he has done. Yahweh. You know, I just want like, you to catch yourself. Like, if, you, if you flippantly use the name of God, like in everyday life, if you just continually over and over again just like say things like OMG, that's something in our culture that like it just, it's, a, it's an abbreviation, right? That You know what that means? Like people say, oh my God, and they're not saying it to say, oh my God, looking up in reverence, but they're just using it flippantly, right? They, they use the name Jesus Christ, but they use it as like a curse word. Like if you catch yourself doing that in your life, stop it. Because there should be a reverence that we have for who God is and what he has done for us. Like, like, like to understand obedience, we have to understand who God is. The reverence for who he is has been destroyed. I mean, we see Isaiah and John and Ezekiel. Like, these are faithful men of God that are far greater godly men than I can ever hope or dream to be. I mean, these are the men that have penned scriptures through the power of the Holy, through the, uh, power of the Holy Spirit, wrote the word of God for us to read. They were invited up to see the throne room of God. And did they think in those moments, like, I'm worthy to be up here? Oh, of course, I'm a prophet of the Lord, or I'm an apostle. Of course, God is going to invite me up to see his throne room. Like, thank you, Lord, for seeing me to be such an awesome person. No, how did they respond? They fell on their faces as though they were dead. And what comes out of their mouth is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, amongst a people of unclean lips. I do not deserve to be in the presence of the Lord. So to understand obedience, we have to understand who we are being obedient to. This isn't some distant God that's out somewhere in the cosmos that's uh, like not interactive with us, that, that uh, is indifferent to who we are. No, this is the God of all creation, Lord of all the earth. And, and for us, we need to stand in awe of who he is and know who's we, who we belong to. Obedience to God doesn't make sense if you don't know God. There is a major difference between knowledge and the knowledge of God and a relationship with God. There's a big difference. I mean, probably one of the most, uh, the biggest controversial debates in our uh, culture today is who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Um, and we all know it's Michael Jordan, and I'll, I'll fight that all day, Miguel. I'll fight it all day. Um, but, but just because I can tell you his stats, and just because I could say that I grew up watching him, and I could tell you all these things about him, I've never met the guy. I don't know him. I don't have a friendship or an intimate relationship with him. There is a big difference between the knowledge of someone and something and an actual intimate, interactive relationship with God. Obedience to God doesn't make sense if we do not know God. And the fact that he chose you to be his child to be his eight-cow wife. So once we know whose we are, we can then know what God has done for us. We know what God has done for you. Look at verse 16b. He creates this beautiful garden, 
And he says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. This is the first glimpse that we see in the entire, like, I mean, this is just the start of all of the blessings that God wants and desires to pour out on his children. And he places them in this garden where he has no want for anything. Where, where he gets to enjoy the fullness of all of this stuff. I mean, God created us to enjoy his creation. You want to know what the Hebrew word for eat here is? Eat. It's profound, right? Like they actually got to pull fruit off of these trees and take bites. And like the taste buds that we have and the flavors and the combination of different tastes and all that stuff. Like, like God created us to have those things. Is anybody a foodie like me? I'm a foodie. Anybody else? Yeah, like I love food and, and like I love different flavor combinations and I love putting things together. Like, like God created us to enjoy these things. He is the author of taste buds. And eating is not the end of it. It's not just merely eating. It's all of his creation. I mean, I can't imagine in the Garden of Eden what the sunsets would have looked like. But I know when I go out to the beach or to the Caloosahatchee River and I see that sunset, there is an awe that overcomes my soul. When you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, when you, when you see, when you get to go to an aquarium and see these, these majestic beasts swimming past this glass, or you actually are brave enough, unlike me, to go like scuba diving, and you get to see it in person, um, like the beauty of God's creation is meant to be enjoyed, and he made that for us. He gave us eyes to see it, and mouths to taste it, and ears to hear the singing of the birds in the morning, to hear each other's voices in corporate worship, God created us, and he's given that for us to enjoy. The things like sports, maybe you like fishing, golf, pickleball, food, movies, reading. I mean, whatever those things that you truly enjoy are things that God has given us. But he doesn't stop at just giving us stuff. The stuff is merely just the, the extra because what he has done is he has also given us life. Now, I say that, but, but I know that this can't necessarily, this doesn't make sense if you're, if you're coming in here today and you've not been a part of church, if you're coming in here today and you've not experienced a, a church gathering of some sort, then to say he's given us life is yeah, you know, he created us in our mother's womb and he gave us life, I, I can get that far. But then there's this spiritual death that we see in Scripture. What, what the Bible talks about is that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. That death that we have spiritually is a separation between the Father, the Creator that has created us, and us. There's this separation, this chasm created by sin, and that is called spiritual death. And I know spiritual death doesn't make sense when you're like, well, I'm walking, I'm living, I'm breathing. Like, we don't necessarily experience a lot of spiritual death, like, other than if we open up our eyes and our minds to the fact of how difficult and hard this world is. If we look around and we see the, the hurricanes and the poverty and the, and the prostitution, and then all of a sudden we begin to open up our minds and our eyes to the fact that, oh yeah, like, like life can be icky. 
Like this world can be really hard. That's spiritual death. A separation from what God has intended for us to have, perfect, intimate relationship with him and no relationship with him. And the Bible says those that have been separated are enemies of God. We are spiritually dead. But then the Bible says, but God, because of the great love in which he has loved us, he has given us himself. He has given us life in him. God doesn't leave us spiritually dead, separated from him, the creator of life. He came to us to experience the death that you and I deserve so that you and I may have life. God experienced hunger and pain and homelessness and beatings and and being ridiculed and made fun of his best friends rejecting him. Have you ever had someone that you love reject you? Someone that you love even when you don't deserve it, walk away from you? He had that. He had his friends deny him, betray him, and then he hung on a cross, breathing the last breath that he had in his lungs, experiencing a physical death, being buried in a tomb. Why? So that you and I may know what it's like to not experience the chasm of death. So what God does is he gives us life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So not only do we know whose we are, but we know what God has done for us, that he has paid the ultimate bride price, and he didn't use four cows or eight cows or even 10 cows. He paid with his own life for you and for me. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I don't know about this God stuff, I want you to know that God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know that he is for you. And he wants to pour out his blessings on you. So then, once we can wrap our minds around whose we are and what God has done for us, then we can go and understand and know why God gives us commands. Know why God gives us the commands that he he does. Look at verse 17 again. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God does not want you to experience death and destruction. I think often in churches, we, um, we can try to portray this picture, and it's going to come up on the screen, of, of heaven and hell. And this is usually the picture that comes up. It is uh, of all of this bright, shiny, beautiful, flowered landscape. And then hell is is this dark, uh, tombstone-filled, fiery furnace of death and destruction. I want you to know that the enemy is way more clever than that. If it was that simple... If that's really what we see, like that we think, okay, life is two choices, walk into a fire or go into this eternal bliss, nobody's choosing the fire. So then we as Christians try to wrap our minds around, why doesn't my son want to know who Jesus is? Like, because this is why. 
What the enemy has done is he has massed over, go to the next picture, please. The, the death and the destruction and the decay with this mask and facade of a party, of a carnival. There's this allure to the things of this world to capture our hearts and our minds, and all they have done is taken another, the enemy, this is what they do, is, has done, he's, he's taken another picture and just slapped it over the top. Behind it is still the death, decay, destruction, and the fire. It's just masked. And I want us to see and understand that this is why it's so difficult for an unbelieving world to believe that God is for them and that God has so much more for them in life because the enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy, as John 10.10 10 says. And so what he has done as the crafty serpent is he has masked over the fire and death and decay and destruction, which every single thing, every single thing that we do that is against God's word will lead us to. I mean, I can go and name the list, and we've done that before. I mean, we can talk about our finances and how we, we steward our money. We can, we can talk about uh, drugs and, and uh, addictions and all the stuff. We could put a whole list together of the things that will always lead to death and destruction. But what the devil has done is he's masked over it, and he's said, here's some temporary satisfaction, temporary fulfillment. And so what you find yourself doing is you find yourself walking into the carnival and trying to win the big stuffed bear. And then when your pocket is out of money, you see the ATM machine that is sitting right there and you think, oh, what's another $20 gonna do? And then you start getting deeper and deeper into this carnival of life. And all it is is leading you to death and destruction. But God's promises are so much greater than any of that. And the picture that we see on the other side is, is a true picture of who God is, but, but it's only a glimpse. Like, to wrap our minds around all that God has for us in eternity, we cannot do. Like, he is going to pour out his blessings upon us and give us fulfillment and satisfaction and joy in such a way that we just cannot wrap our minds around. But that happens as we journey in relationship with him. So all the things, all the commands that he gives us in his word are for our good. And guess what? Look at me for a second. We will fail. You will fail. I will fail. I can't follow this to the T in my flesh. God gives me the power of the Holy Spirit and he is transforming me into the likeness of God, but I will fail. Salvation cannot come through our obedience to the law. So when we mess up, the enemy wants us to believe that we are no longer the eight cow bride that God declared us to be. Do you ever find yourself in the midst of your sin and shame, and guilt, believing the lie that the devil is speaking into your mind, God doesn't want to hear from you right now. God, God doesn't love you anymore. Like, don't, don't open your Bible. You're not going to get anything out of it. 
Like, don't pray. My goodness, God, God doesn't want to hear from you right now. He is mad. Those are lies that the devil is speaking to you in those moments. It's in our sin that we come and ask the Lord for forgiveness. And guess what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What God requires all of this to the T, Christ provides. What God requires, Christ provides. Jesus lived out joy-filled obedience for you and for me. So when God looks at you, you are covered in the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. I love what Jonathan Edwards writes. He says this, in Jesus is found the greatest spirit of obedience to the commands and the law of God that was ever in the universe. And then he goes on to quote John 15, 10. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. That was Jesus speaking. John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. But I lay it down on my own accord. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus lived out this joy-filled obedience for you and for me, and he did it perfectly. He paid the fullness of the price. What God requires of us, Christ provides for you and for me. And here's what Tim Keller writes. He says, how religion works. It's, it's a shift in perspective. If I obey, then God will love and accept me. That's religion. But here's the gospel. I am loved and accepted Therefore, I wish to obey. God does not love us because we obey. We obey because God loves us. And I love that picture as we end, as we close of, of what Johnny English did for his bride. He shared with her her worth by paying way more than they ever deserved, way more than she ever deserved for her to be his bride. Jesus has done that for you. You sitting in this room, if the thought even in your mind is like, well, not for me, because pastor, you don't know what I've done. I promise you, yes, it is for you. And I'm sure that there are many more similarities to your story and my story than you would know. We are sinners, all in need of grace. And God paid the ultimate price for you for relationship. So what do we do? What's our response? God gives us his word, his commands, so that we can experience the fullness of life. We were made to obey so we can enjoy the fullness of life that God has intended for us. So our response is to fall in love with Jesus and trust his commands. It's in the moments when the devil begins to display this carnival in front of us. Whether, uh, whether it's a, uh, something at work or whether it's a, a promised uh, promotion or success, but you have to do some shady things in order to get there. No matter what you're experiencing right now, it's, it's, the, it's the man or the woman in your workplace or at your gym or at the store where you shop like that, that, is, a, that, is, that is seducing you to leave your bride or your husband, whatever that may be, wherever we are in this room today, that in those moments we must fall more in love with Jesus. Remember whose we are. 
Remember what God has done for us and remember why he gives us his commands for our good and his glory. So we fall more in love with Jesus and we trust that what he says is what's best. Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you for being Yahweh. Thank you for paying the ultimate price, reminding us that we are worth far more than we could ever imagine. And God, you say in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So if there's anybody here today that's struggling with addiction, with hurt, with pain, with broken relationships, God, I pray that they would come before you now, receive the fullness of your forgiveness through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and begin the process of experiencing the fullness of life in you and in a relationship with you. God, I pray that we would trust your commands. I know that there are people here today because I am one of them that is continually drawn to the things of this world. And there are struggles and habits and pains that, that we have in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we, all of us, every single person in this room, that we would lay it at your feet and that we would receive your love, your mercy, and your grace, that we would fall more in love with you and that you would do the work that only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit and transform our lives to be more like you. So God, when we are harsh with our kids, when we respond to a spouse or a neighbor in anger, God, I pray that you would wrap us in your love and remind us whose we are. Remind us what you have done for us. Remind us why you give us your commands in the first place. And I pray that in those moments we'd fall more in love with you and trust your commands. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.